Good morning. <laughs> Every week, Mark. Hey, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Acts chapter 5. Now, I was going to start off having everybody sing happy birthday to Ryan. Uh, it's not his birthday. Uh, I thought I needed a way to get back at him so we can all just say, hey, hey Ryan, happy birthday, Ryan. Happy birthday! There you go. That's good. I'm always going to come back with it, man. All right. And they're his hats. So I want to encourage you, if you uh, haven't picked up one of those Acts journals that we have out in the lobby, I want to encourage you to get one of those. Throughout this whole series, you can be taking notes, underlining things. It's a really neat tool for you to be able to take what you're learning here with you, revisit it, uh, dive in a little bit deeper. Now, while you're turning to Acts chapter 5, let me ask this question. What comes to your mind when you hear the word unstoppable? And we just sang a song with that word, but when you hear that word, what is it that comes uh, to your mind? What is it that you think of? Uh, a couple different things come to my mind. As of late, one of the things is every time NBA star Zion Williamson grabs the basketball, I think this is pretty unstoppable. I feel bad for anyone getting in his way, anybody that uh, is underneath the basket when this guy's going to go up and destroy everything that's in front of him. I'm like, man, this, this guy's unstoppable. He's bullying the ball out of people's hands. I know they all travel and the NBA is not real basketball, but it's fun to watch from time to time. <laughs> Maybe what comes to your mind is this next picture uh, a lion running full force. And you're thinking, man, if that lion is looking at you right now, it's over, right? What is going to stop this giant beast from coming right at you when a lion is targeted and it's coming in full force? It looks pretty unstoppable. Now, last week I had somebody catch me in the lobby and they told me a story of a guy recently who was uh, out in the wilderness when he saw a bear and the bear charged him. And so it looks something like this. So you see a bear coming full speed coming right at you and so the man takes off running and the bear is chasing him he realizes quickly I'm not getting away from this bear so he does what he he needs to do in just a moment of desperation he drops to his knees and he says Lord would you please let this bear be a Christian <laughs> but no sooner than he's done with the prayer the bear stops folds its paws and says dear Lord thank you for this meal you've prepared for me now That's free. Thanks for coming. Uh, what really comes to my mind, two things pop into my head when I hear the word unstoppable. The first really is this train here. This is CSX 8888, or Crazy 8 is what it was known at. 2001, this train uh, went, went uh, like without brakes. It could not be stopped through the state of Ohio for two straight hours. So, so picture that. Give it a little bit of perspective. When you get in your car and you drive for two hours, you make quite a distance. For two hours, plowing through stops, not being able to slow down, this train was not going to stop. It was made famous in 2010 in a movie starring Denzel Washington called Unstoppable. Now, it was two hours later before another train could come and butt up next to it, hit the brakes hard, slow this thing down to 11 miles per hour before an engineer could run, jump onto this train, get control of it, and eventually stop it and bring safety to people. It still perplexes me how you can hear in the news that a train for two hours goes without being able to stop, and they think this could make a great movie, and we could put Denzel Washington in it, uh, but they did, and so that comes to my mind. The, the other thing, though, that comes to my mind when I hear Unstoppable is the church in the book of Acts. We're only five chapters in, and we've seen some incredible things. This unstoppable movement of God is the message of God's grace is unleashed on this culture, we have seen thousands baptized into Christ. You're seeing teaching and healing and, and opposition, just this unstoppable movement of God's people. And the question that I'm wondering when I look through the first five chapters, let alone the rest of the book, is, man, where did they get that kind of courage? 
Where did these Christians, these followers of Jesus, get the courage uh, up against all kinds of opposition to stand firm even when faced with death? Where does that come from? Now, the fact that the church grew is historical fact. It's not really debated very much. The church grew, and it grew in unprecedented fashion. One historian said it this way. I like the way he said it. He said, the reason Christianity succeeded over dozens of other religions of its day was because Christians died better than anyone. They died better than everyone else. When Christians faced death, they did so with joy. They were singing. They were praising God that they were counted worthy to die. When they died, they were forgiving those who were killing them. They were forgiving those who had done them wrong, who had beat them and mistreated them, constantly going and facing death. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, said the the blood of the Christian is seed. What he meant by that is the faster you kill us, the faster we grow. The lower you lay us, the higher we're going to raise up. This unstoppable movement of God was because Christians, more than anybody else in the world, faced death with a different attitude. And so when they're faced with this, you see this, these Christians, when they come up against this, where did these common fishermen learn to be so heroic? Even to be able to be willing to face death like this, where did they learn that? You could go to a military school in that day and learn how to be heroic and courageous, but these were common fishermen, common people. I think it's because they would have had an entire history playing in their mind. They would have had an entire history of stories of old, uh, understanding what Scripture had said about God's people, because God's people have always faced death different than the rest of the world. These incredible stories that they would have relied upon in the moment that they needed it to be a source of strength for them. Stories like you can find in the book of Daniel. See, in Daniel chapter 3, I think Peter and John and these guys would have understood this story that had taken place with these three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, up against this king. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar really, really loved Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) And so he put a lot of his resources and a lot of his leadership and energy into making sure that people bowed down to him. In fact, he builds a statue of gold of himself that at a certain point, they were all, to, all people were to stop and recognize, bow down to him and worship his gods. That's what they were called to do. Well, these three friends had resolved that we're not going to do that. If that's what the decree is, we're not going to actually do that. And so the time comes, and everyone's to bow down and, and worship at this statue. And these three friends say, not us, we're not doing that. Someone takes notice, and this doesn't go over well. They make Nebuchadnezzar, the king, aware of this, and he's furious. He calls them before him. Going before the king was always a big deal. And they go before King Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar says, Is this true? If this is true, you're going to pay. You're going to be punished for this. We're going to take you and throw you into this fiery furnace. And the furnace was heated up to the point where when it opened, the guard was killed by it, and so they're facing this. Now, you read that sometimes. Like it's just a story you heard in kids' church. Put yourself in that situation just for a minute. The pressure put on you to conform to what this king is threatening you with or to represent your God. And I love the way they respond. Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. Here's what they say. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. I love that. It's almost like they're saying, Nebuchadnezzar, uh-uh. Like, we're not, we're not defending ourselves. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver, deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't deliver us, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Even if he doesn't save us, you can't stop him. 
Our God is unstoppable. Here's the point. The apostles, the leaders in the early church, these early disciples of Jesus would have had these stories ingrained deep into who they were. They didn't just relate these stories like they were fairy tales and fables that they learned as kids. These were truths about the God who had this mission that he had called all of his people to, to be faithful and courageous and bold. And they would have relied upon these stories. They would have drawn upon these stories to be strength when they needed it. So the question, just as I'm thinking through this, is like, what what about us today? The stories of Scripture, the things we read in this incredible book that God has given to us, are they just things we learned in kids' church? Stories that, yeah, I already know that. I've already heard that. Oh, you're going to Daniel. I can tell you exactly what you're going to say. I already know. Or are they actually put deep inside of us, shaping us into who we're becoming. See, for them, these stories changed everything. Now, as we, before we jump into Acts chapter 5, let's just kind of remember where we're coming from in this, as these stories shaped them, the courage that they stood up with. This church movement, if you will, gets started in Acts chapter 2, where Peter stands up. Peter, the one who was not bold by nature, the one who needed the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to make him bold, because when faced with defending Jesus the first time, he ran, and he denied him. This time he stands up in Acts 2, he preaches this sermon to thousands of people, and we see 3,000 people baptized into Christ, and this movement begins. The very next chapter, Peter and John are walking into the temple. They're headed in to pray, and they see this man who is lame from birth. If you remember, we, we walked through that story, and the man asks him for money. They say, no, we're in ministry. We don't have money. But what we do have, we will freely give to you. And they heal him. He's up and he's walking, but that doesn't sit well with the leaders. And so they drag him in. They don't like this. And so they put these, and right away, another opportunity to be bold. They can't figure out quite what to do with these guys, so they just beat them, and then they release them and say, don't talk about Jesus anymore because we said so. And so they, they send them out. Immediately, Peter and John go and they meet up with the other disciples there. And in chapter 4, they pray. They sit together and they pray. And here's what I love about the prayer. I absolutely love this. They don't get together and ask God, would you deliver us from all the pressure that we're feeling? They don't get together and they say, God, we don't like this. We're not comfortable. The way you're going about doing this, we've got better ideas. Have you thought about this, God? No, their prayer is simple. God, in the midst of this pressure and this difficulty, when opportunities arise, would you, through your power, make us bold? Would you make us bold? And that's a common prayer through the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, S on his chest, cape blowing in the wind, church planter extraordinaire Paul, when writing to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19, he says, hey, and pray for me, not that I might be delivered from everything I'm going through, but that when I open my mouth, I would speak boldly. That was their prayer. I walked through the incident with Ananias and Sapphira, and following that, chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, tell us, man, everything kind of gets really intense after that. There's people bringing their family members out into the streets to be healed by the apostles. They're doing a lot of teaching. They're all gathered together in what's called uh, Solomon's Portico. And chapter, chapter 5, verse 14 tells us that more than ever, people were being added to their number, that God was adding to them more than ever before. Think about that. We'd already seen 3,000 and then 5,000, and now more than ever before, there's people coming to the Lord. Now, Solomon's portico is interesting because Luke tells us a little bit uh, about where they were at. Archaeologists have uncovered dozens of these, what are called mikvahs, these, these giant pools that were used for ceremonial cleansing. Here's why I tell you that. Picture this scene. The apostles are teaching, sharing this good news of Jesus with people. People are being healed, and then more than ever before, you're watching baptisms and baptisms and all these people coming to the Lord. 
and everybody's excited and there's an energy about it all and everybody's liking this except for our friendly neighborhood religious leaders. Again, they're back on the scene and they're not liking it. So we're going to pick up in verse 17 of chapter 5 if you have your Bible. Now you can open that. Chapter 5, verse 17 says this, Luke writes, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. These group of grumpy religious leaders not liking uh, and really not wanting to deal with this. They'd already put all of their energy that they could into killing Jesus. We thought we killed him, and then this Peter and John show up, and we thought we dealt with them, and now there's even more of them. And so they pull them in, and in a display of their own power, they say, we're going to throw all of them in the public jail. So throw them in this public jail. It's not just Peter and John this time. It's a whole group of them. They're all in this public jail. And they say, now that they're in prison, we're going to come over here, and we're going to meet, and we're going to try to decide what to do with this Jesus movement, this movement of Christians. It doesn't seem like we can stop it, but I'm sure we can figure something out. But they couldn't. And God had a plan for this. And so in the middle of the night, an angel comes to let them out of the prison. And the power that's displayed here is not their wit or their strategic leadership or their ability to strategize their way out of different things. What takes place here is the power of God as a part of the mission of God, including the people of God. And so this angel comes and lets them out and tells them, you're now to go and you're to preach. The very reason you were just imprisoned and told not to preach, I want you to go and preach. And so now they're, they've got this dilemma again. Do we obey the fear of these people that have imprisoned us and beaten us, who have said, do not speak, or do we obey this angel who says, no, now I'm releasing you to go and speak. They said, don't speak the name of Jesus. The angel said, go speak the words of life. Jesus. And so they make the right decision. They go out and they begin to lead. Here's why I really like this. I love picturing when the Sanhedrin first heard about what was going on. I mean, their, their heart had to drop. They're just thinking, are you kidding me? How did they get out of the jail? And the, Luke tells us that they go to the prison and they check and the doors are still locked and the prison guards are still there. Doesn't make sense that they're... And now in verse 25, look at verse 25. Then someone comes to them, these now humbled and humiliated leaders, and says, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. Like, how many times do we have to grab you and bring you back over here? They did not use force, though, because they feared that the people would stone them. So somebody doesn't mind what they're talking about and seeing what's going on all around them. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in his, on this name, and yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They can't even say the name of Jesus. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Peter and John are answering like they'd known before. No, Nebuchadnezzar, we won't bow before you. Our God can deliver us, and even if he doesn't. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at, the right, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So brought in front of the Sanhedrin, yet again, this, this would be like the, uh, like, 
Congress and the Supreme Court all wrapped into one. There were 71 seats filled by really prestigious, highly trained, and obviously grumpy men, okay? And these guys are drilling them and questioning them. They couldn't get them to stop. They realized this seems to be this unstoppable movement, but we got to put it to an end. We're getting frustrated. They wanted to stop their movement, and they couldn't seem to do it, and so they pull them in front of them again, and they begin to accuse them. They said, you've done this. You're the one that did this. And they, 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 the, the culture is just kind of pointed against them in this moment. And here's what I love. It's at that moment, you see the answer to the prayer of chapter 4. You see, when they had prayed before, they said, Lord, make us bold. Give us an opportunity to be bold. And now you've got to imagine Peter standing there. Standing there after having just come out of prison. And, and i got to say, when they were in prison, i got to wonder what they were doing in prison because the book of Acts gives us a little bit of a, an inside look when Christians went to jail, what it looked like, and usually they're singing and praying. So now they're released from prison by this angel. They're preaching. They're brought in front of the Sanhedrin. They're accused. And in this moment, Peter has this opportunity. Here's the thing I want you to know. It didn't come natural for Peter to be bold like this. See, Peter, three different times, had denied Jesus. Peter, in his weakness, had prayed for what he lacked. God, help us to be bold. I don't know that I'm strong enough to do this, but with the power of the Holy Spirit, remember, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is kind of our key verse for this book. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses. He says, I need that power because my natural instinct is to run. My natural instinct is to, is to deny. And I know I've done that in my past, and I don't want to do that anymore, and I need your help, and I need to be bold. And now he's got this opportunity, and he steps to the plate. What about us? You ever been there? You kind of feel that nudge from the Holy Spirit to speak about Jesus? Maybe to a coworker or to a neighbor, to cross the street, to, to cross the yard, to go uh, into their office and to begin to share the, the difference that Jesus has made. And you kind of feel the cultural pressure to just stay quiet. You Christians be quiet and stay over there. And yet God puts through the power of the Holy Spirit this nudge on you to begin to represent him. And it's really hard in that moment. What Peter tells us is that it's really in our weakness that he's strong. He is highlighted in this moment. And so he looks at them and he says, no, we're not going to listen to you. And I'll tell you why we're not going to listen to you. Because this Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, God raised him to life. You killed him. God raised him. And we're not going to listen to you because when God raised him, he not only raised him, he seated him at his right hand as leader. It's a really important word. The word appears a few different times in your New Testament, multiple times in the book of Acts. I'm going to tell you what the word means because its meaning helps us understand something about what's going on here. The word translated leader is the Greek word archegos. Archegos. Here it's leader. Other places it's translated author. It appears a few different times in Acts chapter 3. And then if you remember this word, though, it appeared in our series through the book of Hebrews. Two different times in the book of Hebrews. The author uses it in chapter 2 and in chapter 12. In chapter 12 he translated, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. See, this word has multiple different, they'll translate it multiple different ways because it has so much depth to it. I like the word champion to translate it. I'll tell you why. I think in, in mind here with this word, what you would think of is Greek mythology. If you've read any Greek mythology, you understand that they had what they would call heroes, the heroic. People like Hercules that would come in and Hercules would come in and save the day and he would overpower the enemy. Well, when Luke and, and the writer of Hebrews identified Jesus as the archegos. They're saying he's the champion. Now, in this background, the champion would do one of two things. They would come in and they would absorb some sort of a threat that was coming toward people. And so you picture an arrow being shot at somebody. Before that arrow hits that person, the champion, the hero, steps in the way and absorbs the pain of that blow. 
But they didn't just do that. They would then overcome and completely destroy the enemy altogether. And so what, what Peter is saying here is this. Jesus is our archagos. Jesus is the one who has overcome. Jesus took on the pain and overcame the enemy all at once. He's the champion, not you. He did what you could never do as religious leaders. He's the one who has set us free. And so we will never listen to you. We will always listen to him. We will always obey him. And look, you might threaten us. You might throw us in a fiery furnace. You might throw us into a lion's den. You might throw us back in prison, beat us, reject us, and make the world hate us. But at the end of the day, no matter what you bring our way, he's champion. He's overcome. As they begin to present this, something interesting happens. There's somebody listening among the Sanhedrin, a guy who will play a pretty important role in the life of the Apostle Paul that we learn later on. It's a rabbi named Gamaliel, and he's listening to this, and he begins to think about, okay, what's going on here? And he presents something to them, and we're going to pick it up in verse 38. He says this, So in the present case and what's going on here with these followers of Jesus, I tell you this, keep away from these men and leave them alone. He's talking to his co-workers here, if you will. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, it is unstoppable. You will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So when they hear this, they realize, okay, if this really is unstoppable and it's of God, there's nothing we can do. And so they back off and they realize we we probably should listen to him. They take his advice. When they had called in the apostles, they decided, what's one more time? Let's beat him. So they beat him again. And charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. And then the response, after being beaten, wrongly imprisoned, and mistreated, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. It's powerful. And every day in the temple courts, going from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So this rabbi says, hey, guys, we should just chill. We really shouldn't uh, do this because if we're going against God, that's not going to be good. This is going to be unstoppable. And so they bring the apostles in and say, hey, maybe he's right. Let's beat him up one more time and tell him, you stop talking about Jesus because we said so. So they leave happy about the beating, and they're not going to stop talking about Jesus. It's an incredible story of an unstoppable movement of God. But when I read it, I kind of struggle a little bit because I live in a world where I'm not fearing getting beaten and thrown in prison for my faith. So how do we take something from this? What do we learn from this passage to live it out in a life where we have this beautiful gift of the freedom we have to openly talk about Jesus, and yet there are times when we don't? Think about what causes us to hesitate. Fear of rejection. Fear that we don't know enough. Fear that we're not equipped. Fear that the world's going to see us and look at us as weird or different. Fear that I don't want to drive home every day thinking my neighbor thinks I'm a weirdo anymore. And so I'm not going to say anything to them. I don't want to go to work and and be the one person singled out. I don't want to resist going out for drinks and and getting slammed after work because I don't want to stand out and be different. And so I'm just going to mind my business and be quiet. And yet you feel that nudge. And God says, I want you to be a part of my mission. I want you to be a part of what I'm doing. The Holy Spirit nudges us. What is it that keeps us? And so two things I learned from this that I think might help us. The first is this. We need to pray for what we need. Remember, as they're going into the temple in Acts chapter 3, they're going in to pray. When they come away from that entire incident, what do they do? They gather together to pray. My speculation, this is just Rob, is that when they were in the prison, in the public prison with all of the disciples, they were probably praying together. And so prayer and prayer and prayer, and they're gathering to pray all the time. Why? Because they recognize we can't do this without him. Where we're weak, we need him to be strong. 
Boldness doesn't always come natural for everybody. Here, here's the thing about boldness. Boldness is not a personality trait. This is not a call for you introverts to become extroverts. Whew, right? Breathe. You don't, you, that's not what it is. Boldness is about obedience to the nudge that God gives us through the power of the Holy Spirit. That Will I step forward as he leads me? Will I be bold in my obedience to him? It's difficult. It's hard. There's moments where we're, we're feeling the pressure. We're feeling the, uh, the possibility of being rejected and being uncomfortable. What do we do in those moments? I remember one of the first things that um, I was told as a new Christian. I was a senior in high school, and uh, the guy that baptized me uh, began to disciple me a little bit before I left home. And I remember walking in, uh, around with him in his apartment complex area. We're walking out to the car, and he said, Hey, I want to tell you something. If you will pray to God that he will give you an opportunity to share about Jesus with somebody, 100% of the time, God will answer that prayer. He'll give you that opportunity. He said, But be careful, Rob, because 100% of the time, he's going to answer that prayer. And you need to be ready for that. See, every day I believe the Holy Spirit's going to give us opportunities. It could be with your coworker, your neighbor, your family member in your home. It could be the barista at five bucks where you go to get your coffee, wherever it is. He's going to give you that opportunity. And are we praying that in my weakness, would you please be strong? The second thing is this. Prepare for action. We don't just pray. We're actually preparing to move when that time comes. I think many Christians... We rely so much on the preacher to tell us everything, and we're not actually in God's word, reading God's word, spending time, allowing God's word to even read us, letting it sink deep into who we're becoming. See, the apostles were drawing from things that they had spent time with. They were not waiting until the moment of crisis to get ready for the crisis. Long before the crisis arrived, they were preparing their hearts and completely preparing themselves over and over and over again, spending time. And the question is, are we doing the same thing? Psalm 119.11 says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. What it's saying is not, I've hidden your word in my heart so you're not mad at me anymore. It's I've hidden your word in my heart that when the moment of crisis comes, when I walk into a tragedy, when I walk into a difficulty, when life doesn't go my way, when I feel the pressure, the opposition from the culture around me, when I have an opportunity to represent Jesus and I'm scared to death to do it, in those moments I've been preparing and what I've put deep into my heart, the Holy Spirit will pull out and put to the front of my mind. He draws from a lifetime of being in Scripture to help me in those moments. I'll illustrate it for you this way. Dave Stone's the former uh, senior minister of the Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky, one of the largest churches in the United States. And uh, he had a long, fruitful ministry there at Southeast, and thousands of people were baptized into Christ under his ministry. Incredible thing there. But he talks about this moment in his life that was transformative for him. It changed his life. And it happened when he was six years old, and he and his family got into a car accident. And he writes these words about the car accident. He says, after the accident, my brother and I, we were not hurt. But I looked up, and my dad's glasses were broken and fallen off of his face, and my mom was bleeding profusely. I remember hearing off in the distance the sound of sirens and the emergency vehicles coming our way. And then in the midst of it all, I remember hearing my dad's voice come over the whole situation as he quoted scripture, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. Yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. See, his dad didn't start getting ready for that. 
after the accident. That scripture was hidden deep in his heart. And in a moment of crisis, in a moment where he needed it most, it came out. Because he'd hidden it deep in there before. See, what about us? What do we do when we have to walk into those situations when the sirens and the emergencies of life are going off or when the opportunities come our way and we can share the good news of Jesus with someone that we care about and we feel that nudge and we have to step into it and the call is to be bold. What will we do in those moments? Because what's been hidden deep is going to come out. Jesus promised in John chapter 16, he said, in this life you will have trouble. It won't be easy. It won't be comfortable. But take heart. I've overcome the world. In other words, in this world, it's going to be hard and it's going to be difficult, but don't worry, I'm the champion. I'm the archagos. I've overcome. And in your moment of weakness, I will be strong. May we be faithful to that call to boldness as we give our lives to his unstoppable movement in the world. Let's pray.